People want more democracy, not less. It's time to talk progressive politics and practical solutions with Joy Silver. Outspoken from Radio 111. Now, here's Joy. Oh, yes, here I am, and welcome to the show, everyone. This is Joy Silver, and today we are going to be talking about the power of inclusion. You know, Billie Jean King said something I thought was really important the other day, and, well, I actually happened to be watching the Super Bowl. Can you believe it? It's not my thing, but, hey, I wasn't going to miss this. Everybody was watching, and there was Billie Jean King. And she said something that was so Billie Jean. I, I did have the pleasure of working and meeting her many years ago. She said, it's hard to understand inclusion until you have been excluded. So today with us, we have someone I'm proud to call my friend, Dr. Ronnie Sanlow. She is an author, LGBTQ historian, and playwright. And she's the director emeritus of the UCLA Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Center, and a frequent keynote speaker and consultant on LGBTQ issues in higher education. Ronnie is the originator of the award-winning Lavender Graduation, a commencement event that celebrates the lives and achievements of graduating LGBTQ college students. Now retired, she continues to research and write with a focus on LGBTQ history. Ronnie and her wife, Dr. Kelly Watson, are avid boaters and both play really bad golf. They live in Palm Springs, California and Squim, Washington. Dr. Ronnie Sanlow, welcome to Outspoken. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here with you today, Joy. Well, I am excited to have you on this show today. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but first I I thought we would get some background on you and your own background in uh, your experience and what brought you to be such an avid historian or herstorian for the LGBTQ community. Ah, great uh, question. You know, when I was a kid, I knew I was different from my family and my friends. And by the time I was 11, I had fallen in love with Annette Funicello, the best Musketeer ever. And I began looking in the school library for books, for reflections of myself as uh, a little uh, little lesbian. I didn't have that word. I had the word homosexual. So I, I was kind of looking for that. But I would look in libraries. I looked in uh, encyclopedias. I looked everywhere, and I found nothing that described me as a girl who loved another girl. I got to ask you, hold, hold, there, hold on there, what? Ronnie. I got to ask you something what? about Annette Funicello. Just a minute. <laughs> Did you ever get in contact with her? Um, actually, I never got in contact with her, but her grandniece contacted me many years later when I was at UCLA because she had heard my story. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, she, and she came to do an interview with me, and I, I asked if I could meet Annette Funicello, and by then she had uh, she was at the end stages of MS and she wasn't seeing anybody and she died shortly thereafter. Um, oh, my goodness! No, but I but I also had a crush on Zelda Gilroy on Dobie Gillis years ago, and she and I, Sheila James Kuehl and I, are friends now after all these years. Oh my goodness! Well, you've had quite the career in uh, your dreams coming true, I guess, in a certain way. Right. 
Right. But this, but this library thing is important because I found nothing. And when I finally found something in the 1962 Encyclopedia Britannica, it said homosexual, men who love other men, see lesbian. And I flipped the page to lesbian and it said women from the Isle of Lesbos see homosexual. <laughs> Honest to God, that was that was the um, uh, the insertion. And, and so when I finally got to work at UCLA, um, about 40 years later, um, I had the opportunity to design the LGBT center that's at UCLA now. And I designed it with a 400 square foot library so that students could find reflections of themselves. They wouldn't have to go very far. That's so, so that piece was really important to me. And that really is what set me on my, my goals of learning more about my own history as a lesbian, as I was learning about my history as a a Jewish child and then a Jewish woman um, and, and seeing places uh, in which those histories intersected, you know, which sadly was during world war II in Germany in the Holocaust. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, you've had a, a, uh, quite a life experience that certainly would make you an advocate and activist uh, for civil rights um, within your own life. In fact, you kind of documented that into something that you wrote called Letters to Anita. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't want anyone to know that I was a lesbian, and I never told anyone. I never acted on it. I was in the closet, but very aware of my sexual orientation. And at one point, my grandfather said to me, you're almost 25 and you're not married. What are you, funny or something? And I thought, good Lord, the old man has figured me out. i got to do something fast. And I called this guy that he was like my default date in college and asked if he wanted to get married. And he said yes. (laughs) And, And so I was married three months after my grandfather's remark and pregnant a few months after that. And uh, and so I was married, you know, mother of two at home in my clueless closet uh, in Orlando. And, you know, and I, I grew up in Florida, went to school in Florida. And now I was married and had kids in Florida. And uh, Anita Bryant did her Save Our Children thing in 1977. Um, the Florida legislature created their anti-gay parenting laws in 1978 to honor her. And I, knowing nothing came out in 1979 Uh-oh. and and those laws were invoked and I lost custody of my children they were ages three and six at the time so I lost custody of them when I came out and um, and that anger is what fueled my my way very quickly into activism and kept me motivated to continue to do this work um, for many many years why is it so important to tell our stories? Well, if we don't tell our stories, then how will anybody know we existed? How will people know um, the kinds of things that we as lesbians and gay men, and I'll use those terms right now, how will they know we were even here to pave the path for the, the young people of today who use so many more words, most of them I, I have no idea idea what they are i really i'm clueless about today's language Uh, but they get to use those words they get to call themselves whatever they wish because there were a whole bunch of us back in the day who gave our lives 
to um, to making sure that we were included. Mm. So without coming out, without telling our stories, there is no inclusion, and people don't know who we are. Well, I, I do want to get back into that story. So um, what were the repercussions? I mean, in the letters to Anita, you use that um, letter writing to her to explain to her what you were going through. So how did it affect your life and your work once you lost custody of the kids? So so I was extremely angry, and I, I was extremely out. I became very visible, and as a result, I lost every job I had um, because it was Florida, and I just kept getting fired from job after job. I ended up um, homeless for a period of time. I was on food stamps for a longer period of time. And, um, and my life really was pretty much hell, all the while um, being very outspoken for lesbian and gay civil rights. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, the good part was there were a lot of receptions. <laughs> so I was able to eat a little. Um, but, but that's what kept me going was the fact that I lost my kids. I was incredibly angry, and I didn't want anybody to lose their kids again. Mm. And and then AIDS happened. Um, and by the time AIDS came along, these young men who were my very dear friends who, you know, were were just very sweet, good, kind people were dying right and left. I mean, you, you couldn't mourn because as soon as you started mourning for one, the next one dies. Mm-hmm. And and I got a job in the AIDS program in Florida. And, and for seven years, um, I worked as an HIV epidemiologist. Um, focusing primarily on AIDS uh, and how AIDS was affecting um, so many young gay men and older gay men too, but especially young ones. You know, we lost a generation of very creative, very um, uh, artistic, wonderful people who could have changed the world had they been able to live. But it sounds like you've done a lot of world-changing yourself there. You have this Lavender graduation. Tell me a little bit about what Lavender graduation is and was and what you're doing with it these days. Okay, so to lead up to it, I was working in the AIDS program in Florida, and one of the uh, benefits, the pay was terrible, but one of the benefits was education. And I I had already had a a bachelor's degree that I'd gotten, you know, 20 years earlier. And um, uh, so the state of Florida paid for my master's degree and then a doctorate in educational leadership and organizational development. And at the point at which I graduated with my doctorate, I was offered a job at the University of Michigan. This was 1994. Offered a job to grow their, it was called the Lesbian and Gay Programs Office. And when I got there, I added the word bisexual and transgender, which was the first time that had happened on any college campus. And and when I got there, it was in May of 94 and during uh, commencement week. And I saw that that many of the young students were wearing these beautiful um, kinty cloths, these these um, scarves around their neck with uh, varying colors. And I learned that, you know, they were indicative of African-American students who had a graduation, Latino students, Latinx students who had a graduation, uh, Native American students who had a graduation. And that kind of stuck with me. And so the school year starts and I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, the lesbian and gay kids are telling me they're having a terrible time. They can't wait to graduate. They hate being in college. 
And I loved being in college. And so that, that made me really sad. And I thought, let's create something that's going to give them the last taste of their college career is going to be something positive and wonderful. And so that the institution, the academy can let them know that they valued and that these young people who are now graduating mattered. And also that as alumni, they would be inclined to give back in some way, especially to the LGBT community. So, so that was my impetus for creating this graduation so that LGBT students' uh, scholarship and lives would, would be included in the mattering of, of our, all of our students. And I called it Lavender because I thought not being an art major or an artist, I thought when you bring the colors pink and black together, they create lavender. Actually, they don't. But I thought they did. <laughs> And, and in, in Nazi Germany, gay men had to wear the pink triangle. That was the insignia that, that they were forced to wear in the concentration camps. And lesbians had to wear the black triangle, which signified political prisoners, basically. And um, unless they were Jewish, and then they had a yellow star superimposed on it. Um, and so it was, it was honoring our foreparents uh, who were lesbian and gay and in the concentration camps. So that was how I created the color lavender erroneously and called it lavender graduation. And today there are probably seven, 800 universities around the country every year that, that do lavender graduation. And, and I get to be keynote speaker at many of them throughout commencement season from April through June. And what I've learned recently in the last couple of years is that uh, some high schools are now beginning to do lavender graduations. And some community centers are beginning to host lavender graduations for all of the local graduates in all of the high schools in an area. So it, um, it is the legacy that I leave behind in uh, higher education and even now more broadly um, before even higher education. You know, it's, it's interesting that you use the word lavender or that you use the color lavender or even purple. I'm just thinking about the color purple and lavender ladies. And it's although you were looking at it as a mix of colors uh, that actually didn't happen or wasn't right. It's still the the color of lavender for me in the life that I've led always indicated way before there was the um, the rainbow. The the rainbow from from my experience was relatively new as the symbol of LGBT or or L and G. Uh, culture. But before that, uh, lavender, if you mentioned that color, then we knew that uh, this was a part of the culture that we were we were part of. So it kind of turned out right across the board from a cultural point of view. So you were right there with the times, that's for sure. One of the things I um, uh, that I that I know that you do is document history. Um, and you've been doing volume after volume of almost the encyclopedia of the history of LGBT people. What inspired you to start documenting this kind of history, and what are you documenting it now? Okay, so when I retired from UCLA in 2010, um, I knew that my focus was going to be documenting LGBTQ history in some way. I wasn't quite sure how. And I just started collecting information. I've gathered things. I'm a researcher. And, and I just started, you know, every time I would see a name or an event, I would just look it up and put it in a file. 
Well, a couple of years after that, I thought, well, you know, I've got a pretty active Facebook page. I've got 5,000 people just about on my Facebook page. How about if I just put it there? And so every day I would put out, a, you know, one event or one uh, documentation of a person. Um, and I did that for quite a few years. And in 2020, I decided I, I was done. I wasn't going to do it anymore because it because it meant I had to put something on Facebook every day. And that was quite a commitment. And I'd been doing it for a long time. And so I quit doing it. And um, uh, it, people were, they were contacting me saying, you know, we really miss it. I didn't even know they were watching it, you know, or reading it. <laughs> I certainly know, but, watched it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I decided in 2021, I would do it again. Mm -hmm. But I also thought, you know, I could just compile this. I could create a book so I don't have to keep doing this every year. I can create a book and I have it in it. Well, I started putting things, I started doing it like a diary. So Mm -hmm. like January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd. Well, by the time I got to to March, (laughs) there were over 300 pages. Wow. uh, Of, you know, probably two, three, four items per page. Um, and and I knew that doing the whole year would be too big of a book. As it turned out, uh, I it became four volumes, uh, mm. three months for each volume. And people have been sending me um, names and events this whole year because of this. Ah. And and the books have sold really well, which you know for which I'm grateful. And um, and now I've got over fifty pages of just names and just events all need to be researched so that I'll have, you know, dates of birth, dates of death, you know, what they did, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so, you know, I'd really like to find a way to gather some money to hire a couple of interns who will do the research for me because it's just, it's way too much. Well, where could those, where could those interns find you? Is there a, a website that they could go to? Um, well, I have a website, RonnieSanlo.com, but, um, you know, finding, finding interns isn't a problem. You know, I, I still have a great deal of access to higher education. Mm-hmm. So finding people to do it, you know, even my own daughter is getting her doctorate in women's <laughs> studies. You know, yeah. she, I, you know, she could do some of this. But, um, but at some point, I, yeah, I, I would like to be able to, uh, to have some people working on this with me because it's just, it's, it's just a lot. Um, for which I'm grateful. I'm grateful that it's a lot. I'm grateful that I'm finding this stuff because, you know, it shows that we were, we were here. Really? We were here, you know, for since time immemorial. We're going to be right back with you uh, in a few minutes. So please stay tuned for Dr. Ronnie Sanlow and The Power of Inclusion. Our podcast today is made possible by the generous support of My Little Flower Shop in Palm Springs. They are the premier full-service floral and event design studio in our beautiful desert cities. The staff has more than 50 years of experience designing, planning, and executing one-of-a-kind, high-profile social, corporate, and charity benefit special events. That experience includes the Academy Awards and presidential inaugurations. So whether you are planning a wedding, a birthday, showers, or anniversary parties, or you're organizing a big banquet, My Little Flower Shop uses only the finest flowers and will help you celebrate in style. Everyday arrangements, wedding bouquets, centerpieces, 
and amazing unique designs. Call My Little Flower Shop, open daily, 9 to 5. The phone number is 760-778-7111. That's 760-778-7111. And visit them online for visual inspiration, mylittleflowershop.com at 861 North Palm Canyon in Palm Springs. They're open for delivery and an official sponsor of Outspoken. And we're back with Dr. Ronnie Sanlow, The Power of Inclusion. Ronnie, you were talking about documenting uh, our history so people would know we were here. We were here, mm-hmm. we were queer, they got used to it. <laughs> Maybe they, they, actually <laughs> haven't got, they actually haven't gotten used to it, uh, that's a, but that's a whole other story, and uh, I'm going to tip on that a little bit at the end of this uh, interview. But I wanted to ask you, of all of the documentation that you've been doing, and it's been a mighty documentation project, I mean, you have been prolific in, fi- in finding throughout the ages, uh, it's been quite the collection of people. Was there, or are there, some characters who stand out that you found most inspirational or surprised about or kind of made you say, wow. That is incredible, because you have a lot of material you've been going through. Is there something that inspired you particularly? Well, in terms of inspiration, every single person I've run across inspires me. And and every time I write, uh, it could be two or three sentences or it might be half a page. I thank them for having lived. You know, I I thank them for their courage uh, to be who they were and to do what they did. And the, the ones that really spoke to me, this is crazy, but, you know, I'm a boater. And I found two, two lesbian pirates. <laughs> That's um, right. That's from, right. From the 1500s. And they were lovers, as it turned out. <laughs> um, uh, so so there, there was that. And there was uh, uh, one-eyed Charlie, um, <laughs> who was a, a woman who was a stagecoach driver. And she, she drove cross-country, got to California, um, because she she presented as a male person, yeah, uh, she registered to vote in California, and is probably the first female person um, who, because she she identified as female, but she just dressed as male for safety more than anything. Probably the first female person to vote in California. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, there are the frog catchers. Um, the women who came during the gold rush who <laughs> who um, wanted to to be their masculine selves and the only way they were allowed to wear pants in our society was to be frog catchers and so that's <laughs> what they did for a living they caught frogs <laughs> oh they find ways we find ways to survive don't we oh my goodness oh my. well you you certainly are the the picture of we find we i will survive is truly the anthem of our lives of the time period that's for sure you know you have um you are, and you're talking about lesbians right now, and I know that you have kind of started documenting more herstory as, than history. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So all these years that I've been putting stuff out on Facebook about about our history, uh, it's been inclusive, men and women, you know, uh, trans, by you know, now, whatever other terms they're using, uh, pansexual, all this stuff. Um, and that's great. Um, it, but uh, um, now I've lost my train. Well, I of think we're losing oh. the L. I think is what you sometimes say. Right. Right. Okay. 
Yes. So so that's exactly right, because the new words that are coming out, I think we are losing the L. Bonnie Morris writes, uh, she wrote the book Disappearing L. Um, one of my former students, Amin Gaziani, who's a professor at uh, uh, University of British Columbia, he wrote a, a wonderful book a number of years ago um, called There Goes the Gayborhood. <laughs> and and, and the, the point is really kind of ironic. You know, we really fought for inclusion. Yeah. And we fought for assimilation so that we would be considered just like everybody else. And now we are. And we older lesbians and gay men hate it because, <laughs> because what we fought for was not to lose our identities, but that's that's actually from a, a community and cultural perspective. I think that's exactly what's happened, you know, for, for women. And this is why I decided to focus on lesbian history this year um, in what I put out on Facebook mm-hmm. is that, you know, we've lost our bookstores, you know, yes. how many, what, there are two or three lesbian bookstores left in the country. We've lost our bars. We've lost our gathering places. They're just, we just don't have that uh, those those community connections any longer, mm-hmm. and it it saddens me that that our young people um, are have missed out on that. Right. I think that was just a very special uh, place and time for us. And I I have four grandchildren. My twenty six year old granddaughter identifies as pansexual. And she's been in a relationship with a woman for the last five years. Mm. My 23-year-old granddaughter identifies as bisexual. She happens to be in a relationship with a man and a woman right now <laughs> and identifies as gender neutral. Um, my 11-year-old granddaughter is transgender. Um, she was born male. Um, and since she was nine years old, identifies as female. And my eight-year-old grandson um, has a bunch of great role models. You know. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knows where he's going? Oh my but, gosh, that's something that you but, you have brought yourself quite a tribe uh, uh, through your genes, I guess. I'm not sure since uh, you didn't participate in the early life of your children, but there you go. It just isn't that funny. Yes, it right. is. It must have been. And it, yeah. it must have been kind of gratifying for you too, in a lot of ways. You know, there is the, there is your uh, your activism uh, incarnate, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, my son and and his wife identify as pansexual, both of them, and my daughter was almost lamenting the other day that she's the only straight one in the family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So you you uh, resonate with what Billie Jean King said then. It's hard to understand inclusion until you have been excluded. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, before we go, and I can't thank you enough for having and being here today and having this fabulous discussion, I do want to just talk to you quickly about some of the political tides because... We did talk about uh, we're we're here, we're queer, and some people have not gotten used to it. And I know that um, your other home is in Squim, Washington, and you had a QAnon takeover of the city council up there, which must have been totally frightening to all of us who are minor- represent minorities and, and, and women who actually are the majority, by the way, I, I have to put that in there. How in heaven's name did that turnaround happen there? How did they... And you uh, turn that over. So uh, 
it was very frightening indeed. And, uh, you know, and when a bunch of guys with AK-47s were standing on the corner of the street, I mean, it was just bizarre. But I, about a year, just about a year ago, really, um, so it wasn't that long ago, a bunch of people in SQUIM got together and formed what's called the SQUIM Good Governance League. Actually, it probably was longer ago than that because um, there was a whole issue with having a, a meth clinic in SQUIM. Mm. And uh, some people were really vehement against it. But, you know, the Native American tribe there, the um, Sklalem tribe, was going to do it whether people liked it or not because, because of the drug issues. So they were, they were going to go ahead and build it, and they have. Um, but because people were complaining about it, the Squim Good Governance League felt that it was something that was really important and needed in the community. Well, then, you know, all of these um, QAnon people became part of, uh, they were all appointed to the city council by the mayor, who was a QAnon guy. And, um, and so people gathered over the last year, and by last summer, uh, we decided that we were going to we were um, uh, interviewing people to run for office, and we had a number of really good people who were willing to run for city council because the election was coming up in November, um, and all the seats were up for grabs. And so uh, the Squim Good Governance League was uh, put together by uh, by a number of progressives. But it was nonpartisan, mm-hmm. and and that was really the important part. Wow! Um, and so last summer we did a huge um, campaign, public speaking. Kelly and I were very involved in the uh, the postcarding. We wrote, we must have wrote, you know, several thousand postcards. This is in between um, you writing your plays and your novels and your books, right? And your, yeah, right. <laughs> your postcarding. Well, you know, it was important. It's, no, it's home. We're critical. Washington residents. So yes. Well, that is very, very encouraging and very, very, um, I don't know, it's inspiring that you turned over that city council. And, well, you have shown that we've got the power, but you've got to be outspoken. And that is what we are. Thank you so much, Dr. Ronnie Sanlo. Thanks for being here. And thank you to all of you listeners. This is Joy Silver. See you soon. Thank you.